Okay, so I want, I want to make a claim about a story in the Bible that you're familiar with, and I've kind of got to do a little work to get to it, and um, uh, I'll be curious to see if you somewhat agree or if you walk away thinking, okay, I'm going to consider that. I'm going to make a claim about this story. I've never heard this, didn't hear this preached growing up, uh, but I think it has a, a, a profound impact on the way that we do church. Okay? All right, so, hey, friend. So, um, about a year ago or more than that, uh, come on in. Man, they must have upped the price. <laughs> Several seats over here. All right, impress me. Did you bring shrimp? <laughs> Not this time. <laughs> First night, Tuesday night of lectures, praise team has done an amazing job. They go sit down, Rick Atson's up there preaching. One of the members of the praise team, Matt Elliott, we spot him on the front row eating fried shrimp. Wow. <laughs> 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 that was there were shrimp skewers. They were not <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, I was saying, for those of you who just came in, I'm going to try and make a claim about a story in the book of Acts. Uh, but we got to do a little work to get there. And it has, the, my claim about the story has kind of had a profound shape on the way I view um, some really substantive work we do at our church. Okay, I'm going to say on the front end that we have plenty of problems at our church. And depending on who you talk to tomorrow, you could find out about plenty of problems. But we are moving into a place of wonderful health right now. Uh, we're not we're not like the biggest church in town. We're not close to the biggest church in town. Like the health has nothing to do with numbers for us. But we're moving into a place of great joy and health. And so I'm going to claim something about this story and about this element of what has helped us move into health. Okay. In the back corner here is Caleb Panther. He's our executive minister, and Caleb's been a big part of this transition for us. So a little over a year ago, I think, I was in an airport, and I was going up an escalator. And um, I looked up, and uh, about halfway up the escalator, there was a teenage girl with her mom and dad, and she might have been, I, I'm a terrible guesser of ages, but I would say she was probably 14 years old or so. And you could see her bottom, uh, more of her bottom than her shorts. All right? And um, so I'm looking up there, and now I've got to look somewhere else because here's a 14-year-old girl who's not really dressed appropriately, and she's with her mom and dad. Are you with me so far? Mm -hmm. So I try to look somewhere else, and I look... It's, it's these multiple escalators in Atlanta. I look over, and maybe four steps down from her is a guy my age or a little bit older, and he's totally checking her out. You know, taking a good, long look at her rear end. How's that for a beginning to a Pepperdine class? It's <laughs> um, Okay. I'm anxious to how you get from health from here to health. <laughs> uh, is she welcome at the table of the Lord? Is he welcome at the table of the Lord? And when I first said it, what did you think about each one? Um, 
And did you, was there a part of you that abandoned your gospel calling and immediately judged them? Mm. You just abandoned it right away. I mean, we were two minutes into the store, into class. And you just let it go right. And you just immediately connected them to what's wrong with this world. You're welcome at the table. And while you're at the table, I'm going to try and hide <coughs> my disdain for the worldliness in you. Um, we've lost our imagination at the table. And so what I tried to do in that moment was imagine a different story. I tried to imagine that here is a young girl, uh, because I've had two of them, who is really trying to figure out how to make her way through life. And she's got a mom and dad who have laid down the law a whole lot of times. And they're trying to stay in a relationship with her and so on this one, they've chosen not to fight that battle. And they understand that as they go up that elevator, we're all judging them too. I know this because I have been that parent. My oldest daughter is a student at Harding, and she is now in Chile. And she texts me. She texts me five minutes ago, texts me every other day. Hey, Dad, what do you think my spiritual gift is? Dad, how do you depend on God more than human beings? What does that look like in a relationship? But let me tell you, about five years ago, she got kicked out of the Christian school that is on the that our the church that I preach for is on the campus of that Christian school. So I know what it's like to be the parent of the kid riding up the elevator, and you and I are judging her and me and my wife because we've lost our imagination. And we say everyone's welcome at the table, but we mean welcome with an asterisk, right? Um, what if that guy's story is a little bit different? What if it's like some of yours, maybe? What if that guy has had a lifelong struggle with lust and pornography and dealing with his own sexuality? And as soon as you look away, you're going to miss him looking away and walking through the steps in his own mind, working the steps again, and dealing with his addiction and with his love for Jesus and repenting and giving that girl to Jesus in her body, as Don Papa said last night, to Jesus and wrestling with that. Uh, I'm telling that story to suggest that saying everyone is welcome at the table is really complicated for us because we're all human beings and we don't imagine each other very well. We don't, we don't engage uh, a Heather... Um, Heather uh, Hodges just preached down at the Stauffer Chapel, and she said, hope is a strategy. It's not a, it's not a feeling, it's a strategy. Engaging imagination about the other as we come to the table of the Lord. Are you with me so far? Okay, so I'm going to make a couple of claims about the table, and then we're going to come back around to um, what I'm going to claim is the one person that's not welcome at the table of the Lord. I'm going to make this claim that there's one that's not. And it's not the girl, and it's not the guy, and it wasn't me, I hope. I think we're all welcome at the table. Okay, so I'm going to make a claim. If you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, um, I, we're not going to read all of these stories, uh, but I'm just going to reference them if you want to jot them down, and then we'll look at one at the very end. Okay, so a couple of claims about the table. One, this claim that everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord. So I don't know what 
religious tradition you come from, probably most of you come from Churches of Christ, but then even within Churches of Christ, there are lots of different sort of unspoken ideas about what happens at the table. At our church, we practice a completely open table. We articulate it often. This table is open. And by that, I mean we, um, we believe you are welcome at the table even if you don't believe in God today. You're welcome at this table. Uh, you don't have to believe that, and, and we, could, we could have some theological conversations and arguments about that, and you could make some valid points about the scriptures. We have come to that conclusion not because we want to be trendy or because we don't want to offend anyone. We've come to that conclusion because we believe that is what the Gospels teach, specifically in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so instead of calling it Luke, in this class we're going to call it First Acts. Mm-hmm. All right, so you've got first acts and you have second acts. The, the, the worst part about the canon, besides the inclusion of Jonah, is, <laughs> is the separation of Luke and Acts. Right, Ross? Are you with me on that? I understand the reasons. You've got the synoptics and you've got the Gospel of John, but you misunderstand Acts if you don't read it as second acts. And you misunderstand Luke if you don't read it as first acts or first Luke and second Luke. So if you have first Luke, there are lots of there are lots of threads. Luke is a really good writer. There are lots of threads uh, running through the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of First Acts, and one of them is everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord. This is uh, no matter what your church concludes about who's welcome and whether your ta- how open your table is, you cannot argue this fact. Luke definitely asserts everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord, and when Luke asserts everyone, he means everyone. Right? So who are some people uh, uh, with whom Jesus dines in the Gospel of Luke? Anybody remember? The Pharisees. Good job mentioning the Pharisees first. Because he does dine with the Pharisees and they're our bad guys. Right? Who else? Zacchaeus, which is my, it's my all-time favorite story in the Bible, Zacchaeus. It's not because he's short, but there's just something about something about that story that I I go to that for like meditative Bible story narrative a lot, and I climb up in the tree with Zacchaeus, and I carry all my stuff, all my burdens, and I let them go one at a time, and I find Jesus there. And something about that story. He uh, there's not technically a table mentioned, but that's a it's a table story. I've got to go to your house. The assumption is we're going to eat together at your table. What else? Gospel of Luke. Does he say sinners somewhere? He's eating with Sin- sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. You got your sinners, and then you got your really bad sinners. You got your girls with short shorts on the escalator, and then you got your old guy checking out the girls. That's the tax collectors. Sinners, tax collectors, right? You got the sinner, like, they shouldn't do that. And then you got the icky sinner, the tax collector. Um, Jesus early in the Gospel of Luke, calls Levi to be one of his disciples. They go and they celebrate at the table. We don't really have time to go into it, but I, this really is a scandalous event. It's not scandalous because he's eating with sinners. It's scandalous because he's enjoying a feast with tax collectors who have abused the people he's trying to call into his kingdom. He's, he's like living it up on the spoils of, of, of the poor. 
We don't really preach that very often. Jesus is a lover of the poor and a, and a, a cheerleader for social justice. <laughs> but here he is eating in a really nice home at a nice table with the money that is stolen from the poor whom he also loves. All right, who else? Banquet table, the highways and Yeah, there's a later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus actually spends a good bit of time talking in parable and teaching about the table itself. Who's invited? What should you be like when you're at the table? Who should be welcome at the table? It's not just people that you love or people who have something to offer you. It's people who um, you do not know or who you think probably don't deserve to be at the table of the Lord. It's a that section later in the Gospel of Luke is a pretty good. Uh, argument for an open table. Um, any others that come to mind? Judas. Judas and the the Last Supper. Jesus shares a meal with Judas, knowing all the gospel writers are clear that Jesus knows what's about to happen with Judas. There's a sinful woman. She didn't get to eat at the table, but she was yeah. at the table. Jesus definitely was. <coughs> my second favorite story. Gospel, Luke is my favorite gospel, and my second favorite favorite is. The simple woman and Simon and Jesus saying, Simon, do you see her? That's a really profound story. She's she becomes like so often in Jesus' story, she becomes the hero of the story. Right? There's a there's a I don't know if I wrote down the chapter, I don't remember. Oh, uh, chapter ten, the Gospel of Luke, is the Mary Martha story. Right? This involves table, and it's really my contention is this isn't really a story about doers. And contemplators, those who are who are sort of you know thrive and work, and those who know how to be still and listen to Jesus. This is a story about um, being welcome with Jesus, and this is this is my contention. This is a little bit hard for me, y'all, because Ross Cochran's in here, and he's a professor from Harding. He's kind of a big deal. And if I say something wrong about a verse, he's going to know. All right. Um, I mean, Matt Elliott, he's not going to know. I could say lots of things wrong. He won't know. Ross. Right? What? Okay, so here's my contention about Mary and Martha. That This is really a story about a woman sitting in a disciple's seat at the table. Uh, listen, the, in fact, I think it's been a big mistake to suggest that people who are contemplative, who like, like me who love to practice silence and stillness, are more spiritual than people who find God in work. My mom finds God in work. She talks to God nonstop. She's Brother Lawrence. She never stops talking to God while she's washing dishes, while she's cleaning, while she's serving people. She finds God in the midst of that. This is not what Mary and Martha is about. Mary and Martha is about Martha thinking that women belong in one place in the home and near the table and that disciples belong in another. And Mary has sat at the table. She's sitting at the table. She's not serving. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen the better. Not that service versus sitting, but who gets to sit at the feet of Jesus and be a true disciple? Well, Mary does. Everyone's welcome at the table, including Mary. Okay, there's a so there's this there's this thread throughout the Gospel of Luke. Um, but those of you who came in a little bit later, we're calling it Acts one. It's important to understand this for the point that I'm going to make. In Acts one, Luke writes both. In Acts one, there's this thread 
Luke is building a theme. Everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord. There's a lot of breaking of bread. And breaking bread in the Gospel of Luke means communing with Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus, sitting at table with Jesus. And there's this present activity, and there's a little bit of like cryptic language about what's going to happen in the future. Um, my contention is very soon in the future. And far away in the future. You know how you can read an Old Testament text, and it's about... Ten years from now and about eternity at the same time. And this happens in the Gospel of Luke 2. That Jesus makes some references to what's going to happen in the kingdom of God. And I'm claiming he's talking about as soon as I rise from the dead. And in the kingdom for eternity. That, it, that at the center of the kingdom of God is a table. And everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord. We're going to dine with him. So there's this theme building, 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 building. And Jesus, uh, Bill had mentioned... Um, Judas and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And um, then later, Jesus rises from the dead. And there's another table scene. Okay, so one other claim that I'm going to make that I'm not going to try and support it at all. Um, well, maybe just a little bit. but um, And that is that communion is not a Sunday event. I really don't believe that. I, I mean, I believe it's totally okay to make ceremony out of things. We're human beings, and ceremony is really helpful to us. There's nothing wrong with our communion practices as ceremony. I just don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I really uh, thoroughly believe that Jesus meant, hey, um, today when you, when you break bread together, when you go have a meal, remember me. Every time you sit at table. Luke is establishing Everyone's welcome at the table of the Lord. And so much of Jesus' ministry revolves around the table. And Jesus says to his disciples before he departs, every time you sit at table together, remember me. This is communion. right? And so if you want to make a ceremony out of it on Sunday and sort of practice it in a different way, fine. That's wonderful. But this isn't the whole of what Jesus was going for. In fact, that ceremony will be more deeply informed if you have practiced communion all week long mm. with each other. Every table you sit at, whether with Christian or with atheist, you remember the body and the blood of Jesus. Okay, that's another client for another class for another time. Um, okay, so in, in Luke, in chapter 24, uh, there's this story, this is post-resurrection. This building up, everyone's welcome to the table of the Lord. Stuff happens at the table of the Lord, right? In the Gospel of Luke or Acts 1, stuff happens. In, in, in chapter 24, there is this um, event which Jesus is resurrected and people don't always recognize him because he's in his resurrected body. The resurrection has signaled to us, hey, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Death is no longer the unknown uh, because Christ has conquered death. And look, he's got a resurrected body. It's not, it's not so, such a mystery anymore. You too, you'll have resurrected bodies as well. And he doesn't, he doesn't like, Help us know whether I'll have hair or not. But it'll be a resurrected body. Jesus is walking along and these, these two disciples, we don't know much about them, their husband and wife, if they, we don't know. Um, they don't recognize him at first. Um, in verse 21, they're talking to Jesus. They said, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but didn't find his body. 
they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You can see, man, these, these people are just like us. They're kind of trying to hold on to faith, but they can't, can't quite bring themselves to say it out loud, you know. They're just like us. They, 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 they had hoped. They had, had dreams of, you know, Jesus did say about three days and I will rise again. And now there's some murmuring, but they're not going to be the first ones to proclaim the certainty of faith here. He said, then how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. By the way, I, th I believe that these pas passages like this, I get this from Dallas Willard, that when Jesus says these sorts of things, it's an affectionate um, uh, interaction. Mm. You know, like with my children, you know, it's sort of a... What Dallas Willard says that ye of little faith is like a little... It's actually a little nickname that he has, ye little faithers. It's a, it's a little... It's like a nickname. It's a sign of affection. Um, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. By the way, just as another little aside, uh, teaching is not the moment of great revelation in this story. Like Luke is a good storyteller, and he's been building up to a point in which it's all you know, like the doors are going to swing wide open, and this is it. This is the story. It's only in, it's only in first acts, and it's not teaching. Teaching is not the place in which this happens. And so I don't know how many of you are in here, less than 100, somewhere around 100, for those who are listening. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm betting that more than 50% of you think that you're cerebral learners. And I'm also betting that about 1% of you actually are. That we, we, of course, we all have a, 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 a bit of, like we're cerebral, we learn by studying our way through things. But the truth is, most of us learn by experiencing our way through things. It doesn't mean that we throw our brains out uh, in the trash, but it just means this really isn't the primary way that we're transformed. If you doubt me on that, become a preacher. <laughs> you will discover this. You'll discover this, that people, it's not, teaching is wonderful, it's important, I'm doing it right now. But it's not usually the moment of revelation. This isn't when the doors swing wide open. So Jesus teaches them, and it helps. It like sets the table for them. But it's not the moment. Um, where was I? What verse? 26 and 27. Uh, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village um, to which they were going, Jesus acted... Uh, as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. It's not that teaching, teaching is so like, it's so um, wonderful here. It's causing their hearts to stir and burn, but it is the presence of the living Christ at the table that brings about transformation and doors wide open for them. And so Luke, who in first acts has been building a case, now comes to like the pinnacle of his case. 
And it is that in the breaking of bread, we see the Christ. It's in the breaking of bread that we see the Christ. Okay, so I'm saying all that to say this isn't really a class just about communion. This is actually a class about vulnerability. I tricked you into coming. Uh, I'm saying all that to say you can't just throw all that out and start second acts as if first acts never happened. This is what we have done. We, we treat second acts as if it is really a guideline for church practices and not the continuation of first acts of Luke's story about the table. And so second acts begins... They are gathered around a table in an upper room. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them. And God does, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit primarily. First acts is the acts of Jesus. Second acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit starts to do these amazing things in the church. And the church is marked by the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship of the body, and the what? The breaking of bread. When? Where? Every day in their homes. What You're telling me that all of a sudden the breaking of bread means something completely different in second acts than it does in first acts. I don't think so. They are sharing communion with Jesus and with each other every day in their homes together. And this marks transformation in Christ's church. This is, like the, this is like the hub of the Holy Spirit's. And Lord, be with those who are late and coming in late. And <laughs> Just joking. Come on in. It was. Uh, okay. So, so I'm making a claim. First act. Second Acts, you can't divorce the two. They have to go together. Luke, he's making lots of claims, but one of them has to do with the table of the Lord, and we've misunderstood it. It wasn't very, it wasn't very long into um, uh, uh, the early church that communion was sort of institutionalized, and that's okay. I'm not, not downing that ceremony is really valuable for us. We do weddings when we don't have to. I did a wedding one time where a couple, they were going abroad to get married, and they couldn't get the licensing worked out right, so they asked me to marry them in my office beforehand but not tell anyone, and the bride said, please make it as unspecial as possible because I want to feel like we really got married over there, but in actuality we're getting married here, and so they sat at my desk, and I looked at him, I said, do you take her? And he said, yep. And I looked at her, I said, do you take him? And she said, <laughs> that's, as, that's about as unspecial as I can make it, right? But ceremony, and we don't have to have ceremony in wedding, but we do because, not because of mother-in-laws only, but because the ceremony helps us as human beings. I'm not, I'm not downing Sunday communion ceremony at all. I'm just saying um, I think Jesus was about something different. And if you read Acts 1 and Acts 2, I think you might come to the same conclusions. So uh, I'm trying to build up to a point here. Um, Luke is building a case for this sentiment. The table of the Lord is open. Everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord. And Luke is marked by Jesus. Uh, is the One of the reasons Zacchaeus is my favorite story I mentioned earlier is because Jesus almost seems trigger happy with mercy. 
Like he's going to just give Zacchaeus credit before anything has been done. He just seems to be, he is Barney Fife with mercy, right? <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. He just want, he's just so, you can't put mercy in his gun because he will shoot it, right? He just he seems so eager to accept in the Gospel of Luke. And then you get to Acts 1, Acts 2, you get to Acts 5. You know what's in Acts 5? The Holy Spirit kills a couple people. This does not fit in with Acts 1 in any place. Not, there's not one place in Acts 1 that this fits, at least at first glance. And then early in second Acts, Luke picks up the same story. Everyone is welcome to the table of the Lord. And people were coming from all over and experiencing the mercy and the love of Jesus, and they were fellowshipping at that table. And, we're going to, and you're going to read later in Acts 2, even Gentiles are going to be welcome at the table of the Lord. Everyone's welcome at the table of the Lord, except, evidently, Ananias and Sapphira. But what did they do in the grand scheme of things? I mean, I've had in my office, I've had people who have done some stuff. I once had in my office a woman who was having an affair with her daughter's husband. They were newlyweds. People do stuff. You know, ask your minister sometime. Like, have you ever experienced any kind of crazy stuff? Some of you have done some crazy stuff. Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, on the whole, they gave money to the church. They sold property they didn't have to sell. They gave money to the church, and they weren't completely honest about all of it. I mean, where I come from, you can make elder on that. <laughs> that is not, like, that's just not that. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Okay, so I'm going to make a claim about um, that and then spend the rest of the time talking about vulnerability a little bit. So here's my claim, that Ananias and Sapphira isn't about money. It's not a story about money at all. And every sermon I've ever heard about Ananias' fire is about money. And I just don't think it's about money. Um, I think that the Holy Spirit was saying to the church, everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord, no matter what you have done. You can bring anything. Woman who is so full of shame because you slept with your daughter's husband. Teenager who is so full of shame because you've exposed your body in some ways looking for love. Older man who is so full of shame because you spent time looking at and imagining that teenager on that escalator. So full of shame and guilt and horror at your own brokenness and fallenness. You are welcome at the table of the Lord. Everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord except fakers. You can't, you can't be a faker. Mm. You, can, you can have sin. Everybody has sin. But you can't pretend like you don't have sin. I'm not suggesting you have to get a mic every Sunday and work through all of your sin. I'm just saying, at the table of the Lord, if there's one thing that can ruin what has been established at the table, and that is that this is a safe place for everyone, Everyone is more than just welcome. They're valued. This is the table where you can say, 
I gotta be honest. This is what's been going on in my heart and my mind. I have to tell you the truth. This is what's going on in my life. And you are welcome and safe. There's one thing that will ruin that, and that is people faking it. You can't have both. Go back to Acts 1 now and consider the moments that Jesus is the most harsh with people. It is always swirling around hypocrisy. It's not that like, this one sin is worse than all the others. It's that this sin ruins what is being built. And what is being built is a place in which all people are welcome and valued. Not just welcome, but valued. So, enter in vulnerability. At the table of the Lord, we have to be vulnerable with each other. I don't know what, I don't know how you work that out. I don't know exactly what that always means. There are moments and times for appropriateness of sharing and all of that. But there are just ways to be real with each other. And this marks the table of the Lord. Realness and vulnerability. And the absence of it, it is the absence of communion. It is not considering the body. 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's like getting on to them, he's not getting on to them for not concentrating enough. He's getting on to them for not being mindful of the whole body. For the brothers and sisters there. Right? My vulnerability, my realness with you, it's a blessing to you and yours to me. And the absence of it builds a culture of uncertainty and paranoia and a sense of, it's the removal of safety. Okay, now listen. What is, what is the American church most criticized for in our culture? It is being fakers. It's not being sinners. It's just being fakers. We've abandoned the table of the Lord for a ceremony that is absent of authenticity and vulnerability. I was, um, are you with me on this? I was um, uh, watching this documentary. Okay, so this guy, Richard. I hope I tell, this is my first time I ever tell this. I hope I tell it well because I actually cried when I watched it on the airplane on the way over here and cried. Big cry, baby. Um, okay, so Richard, in one scene, is getting his black belt. He's a, he's a pretty tough guy. And I, I've not ever been involved in martial arts. I didn't know that when he, back in the day when he got his black belt, it was considered in America, this particular black belt was considered one of the hardest to get. And the final test is to go up, you, you, um, you fight for 10, you have 10 three-minute fights with no break. If, you, if, if you've ever like boxed, my brother and I boxed when we were little just with each other, and you can box for like 30 seconds and your arms feel like they're going to die, right? It's way harder than those. So this guy is going to fight 10 three-minute fights without any stops, but all, uh, all 10 fights are fresh fighters. They all have their black belt. So there's this scene where he's waiting, and there's a line of black belts. There are 10 of them. And they are going to pummel him. So if you, if you were to think like I think, but, but they're going to be, they're going to take it easy on him. Because No, they broke his arm. Yeah. They broke his arm about halfway through. He earned his black belt. Right, they pummeled him to death. All right, this guy's name is, no, I'm sorry, he didn't die. He, he got his black belt. He did break his arm, though. His name is Richard. 
So one scene, he's getting his black belt. Another scene, he's a magician. He's a, he's a card mechanic, is what he calls himself. So he's not really like a magician, like there's some secret trick. He is amazing with cards. He never stops. Like he has cards in his hands. His wife says he has cards in his hands 16 hours a day. That he shuffles them with one hand. That one time they were making love and she heard the shuffling sound. <laughs> like he, he's constantly, he has cards in his hands all the time. So he does these amazing tricks. Like he, he's, they're not tricks. They're just, he knows how to work cards. So he lays the cards out and, and um, he does this thing with the queens. And he has people in the audience shuffle them and move them around. And then he has someone else say, okay, we're going to do a poker hand. I'm your partner. I'm going to set you up for a win with the queens. Where do you want to be on the table? And he says, I'll be player number two. Like, the other guy's picking it, right? And, uh, and so he says, okay. And so he starts dealing. And he deals like a queen every time. He's amazing, right? Okay, his name's Richard Turner. Have you ever heard of him? Okay, he's blind. Mm. He can't see anything. He's completely blind. And what's interesting about him is you can't tell right away that he's blind because he's really good at hiding it. So when he does his show, if you don't already know that about him, he's, since he's a card dealer, he sits at a table, and he has this ability to like look at the people that he's working with even though he can't see them. And so people, they were like, you, you could hear people when they're doing the documentary, hear people walking away, and someone will whisper, do you know he's blind? And someone, what? No, he's not. I saw him. And then the, that they're talking about. Do you think he really is? Or is that part of the trick, right? He's completely blind. And he does those amazing tricks. You should watch the documentary. It's called Delt. Um, so Richard Turner, for most of his life, does this sort of like career as a magician or a card mechanic. And most people, unless they've heard his story, don't know that he's blind because he doesn't want him to know. He doesn't want him to know that he's blind. He doesn't like to. He doesn't like that word. He has a sister. He went blind when he was about seven years old. He has a sister who had the exact same experience. She's the owner of a of a really large um, construction contracting firm, and she lives a life of outward blindness. She has a blind dog. She's learned technology. She's learned braille. And in the documentary, there's this sort of like holding up these two experiences of blindness. The one guy who doesn't want anybody to know that he's blind, and the sister who is okay with everyone knowing that she's blind. And she says, I, um, I choose this life because I want to be free. Mm. Think about that for a minute. When we think about vulnerability, like me exposing myself, me being real with people, our first word isn't usually freedom, is it? But she believes that if I live that way, I'm free from the burden of hiding that. And not only that, she explains, I have now freed other people. Because if you go back and investigate Richard's life, you'll discover that he has to secretly rely on and burden a whole lot of people to keep his secret. Everyone must do, every, the people who are on the secret must do everything for him because he's unwilling to be out there with his blindness. His blindness has enslaved him and everyone around him. And a moment of vulnerability would free them all. So at the very end of the documentary, his son, who, who he's basically enslaved, 
He's dependent on him in some unhealthy ways. All his life goes away to college. And it's a, it's a breaking moment for him. And he decides to be blind. And so there's this scene where he's in front of an audience. And he's doing his performance, but it's different. Now his performance is narrative. He's going to do all the same tricks, but he's going to tell his story. And his story begins with, he's at the table, and he's got cards. It's the same kind of people, same people sitting on the stage with him. And he says, chapter one, I went blind. That's vulnerability. He freed himself and everyone in the room. You know what happens when he did that was, now his, the things that he's doing with cards, are they more amazing or less amazing? More. They're more amazing. Like this is what we as human beings don't get, is that our woundedness, that is our gift. That's our giftedness. It's in our wounds, in God's working in those. This is what's really profoundly impressive and liberating and inspiring for all other human beings. Vulnerability. This is the anchor of the table of the Lord, right? So I wrote down a quote of his. I hope I wrote it down. Um, yeah. He said at the very end of the documentary, I would not have achieved what I have achieved without my blindness. If you said that out loud, right? Um, so I'm suggesting this is what we have abandoned at the table of the Lord for order and decency and self-protection. And that if your church wants to become more healthy, I, can, I could never tell you how to grow your church numerically. If you like that, would be the, I'm totally the wrong guy for that. The rushes, all of us do not have that in our genes. But if you'd like for your church to become more healthy, start being honest with each other. Create a culture in which it is safe to be real. And you will be surprised by two things. You'll be surprised by the stories that you hear and by the anger that you receive. You will discover this has been a dark spiritual battle all along and that your church has been losing that battle. When to the surface rises stories of heartache and pain and the victory of God and anger that we're telling these stories out loud. You just might be surprised by that. Okay, are you with me still? Yeah. An hour is a long time for a class. Uh, at least for me. I don't want to sit and listen to anybody for an hour except for myself. I'm glad to do that. Okay, so here's what I wanted to do next. Um, I, I know I've dumped a whole lot of like ideas about Luke and Acts and passages. You can go back and read those and feel free to email Ross Cochran if you disagree with me. Um, what I wanted to do was tell and then open it up for you to talk about because I'm, I'm kind of... Forgive me, I'm, I'm preaching this as if your church has completely failed in this altogether. I understand that that is not the case, but it just helps me say it the way that I, I want to say it. So I'd like to open it up here in a minute to, hey, how have your churches practiced vulnerability in really helpful and healthy ways? But here's what I want to do. I want to tell you about some things that we have done at campus that I think that have changed the culture. Caleb has been working with us for two years, but he's been a member there for six years, and we just talk about it all the time. It is not the place than it was when I first got there. It just is a joy to be present every Sunday. 
And you know how we've always said the communion is the center of our service, but it's never been true? <laughs> I mean, maybe like in our heart, we're like, yeah, okay, Jesus, I'm trying to make it the center of our service. I'm trying to think about the right things, but it's never really been. It's all, we're a preacher centered. At campus, the communion is the center of the service. It truly is. It is what we walk away talking about our time at the table of the Lord together. Okay, so here are some things, just real quickly, that we've done. We at campus have embraced storytelling. It is one of our strategies. I get our values and strategies confused. But it, it is one of our strategies that we're going to tell our stories. We're going to learn to tell our stories, our stories of woundedness and God's redemption. Uh, we have lost the art of storytelling and replaced it with preaching mm. in the churches of Christ. And we need, to, we need to trust each other to tell stories. You know what you're going to find out? People are terrible storytellers. And some of them are really great. And some of them say things that are inappropriate. And some of them say things that are really wonderful. Yeah, you got people in your church. Your preacher's not that great either. He has it on Sunday and then off Sunday, right? So your members are too. So we've embraced storytelling and we've looked for ways for that to happen in planned ways, and but more than that, in really organic ways within our church. So we made this shift that some of you have already made. Um, but some, a lot of it was really... To be honest with you, the Holy Spirit did it. We didn't really plan it. We made a shift to changing the way that we did communion to be a place where members, men and women, families, groups of people could come to a table and just say, this is what God's been doing in my life. So I, I never asked anyone to share their deep, dark secrets ever when we first started doing this. I just asked people, hey, could you tell one of two things? What's communion mean to you? And or what's God been doing in your life? And the Holy Spirit, he was amazed. Just swung wide open the doors. And every Sunday, there have, there have literally been more than one Sunday where I get up and say, not preaching today. That was enough. It was so powerful and profound. This is what God is. And not always like some, some I was, a, I was a, a drug dealer and God found. No, sometimes just, the, the blessing of vulnerability, even in simple ways, that just profoundly blesses the church. So we've changed the way that we approach the table of the Lord, and we've actually leaned more into Passover celebration. The table of the Lord in Passover is a place for telling story. This is what God did, is doing, and will do in our lives. Of course this is appropriate at the communion table. Um, so this has been a, a significant change for us and then we started to say out loud, this is one of four primary values for us. Like, it could have been lots of things, but this is one of four things that is a hugely big deal for us, vulnerability. And we say it all the time. Um, a couple of, or a couple of months ago, the head of the, our church is on the campus of a college preparatory school. And... Um, the head of the science department, this really brilliant guy, I had asked him to do a kind of a different kind of communion that Sunday and lead us in meditation. He's a contemplative. And so I said, hey, just something a little different for us. Would you just kind of lead us in a time of silence and meditation? Said, Absolutely. And some of our members, like, they really long for that because the whole storytelling during communion, it, they don't love it, you know. And they're heathens and they need help. But anyway, <laughs> no, I'm sure. um, and so I asked Tom, hey, would you do something a little different? He said, Absolutely, I'd love to. And um, he came up to me right before church and he said, hey, 
I've had some things happen this week. Do you care if I call an audible and do something else? Absolutely, I totally trust you. And I trust the Spirit working in you. And so Tom got up in front of the church and he said, this week my wife filed for divorce. Mm-hmm. And here's what I want to say to you. Everyone is welcome at the table of the Lord. And he said, if you, if you um, like sort of harbor secrets or you're new here, you need to know something about this church. I feel totally safe telling my brothers and sisters that my wife filed for a divorce today and that I'm hurting, that it's been a dark week for me and that Christ is willing to meet me at the table of the Lord. That's a pretty powerful vulnerability. So do you suppose that ministered to people <laughs> that day? I'm going to say yes. We, we state out loud often, this is a value so that our members can repeat it, so that Tom can get up and say, listen, um, we need like words and language to help us know this isn't this is what is happening. Let's call it out what it is, so that Tom can now not just kind of feel that, but state it with us. This is who we are. He's not on staff. We didn't coax him into saying that. He just knows this is something we value. And when he entered into a moment where vulnerability would set him free and bless him and the church, he embraced it because we've said it over and over again. Vulnerability is something that we value. Okay, so we embrace storytelling. We have changed the way that we practice the table of the Lord. We've made room for storytelling at the table of the Lord. We have called vulnerability one of our great values because we believe this is what the Holy Spirit was fighting for in Acts 2 for the church, that this is essential for the health of the church and the kingdom of God. And then Caleb and I, we model it. We live it out. And this is the hardest part. Because <laughs> most of you were with me until this point. We model it. So in our staff meeting the other day, I confessed a sin. I'm going I'm to tell you too. I've confessed enough times now that it's not as painful as before. But I modeled it for our staff. Not, I didn't think, I need to model this for the staff. I just believe that vulnerability is valuable. So I had a, um, an elder come to me recently um, and say, hey, you do something in your preaching that you need to stop. How, how many of you are preachers in here, by the way? Don't you love it when people say that to you? <laughs> Actually, I really trust this guy. And so my response was, well, what is it? And he said, um, you're kind of a sarcastic guy, which is true. My wife says sarcasm is not a parenting technique. A lot. <laughs> and um, he said, sarcasm is fine sometimes. But he said, when in your sarcasm you suggest that you have enemies in the room and you kind of paint a picture that there are some who are against you and not for you, it might be true, but it's not helping build the culture that you want. And man, he was so right, and I just never had even seen it. I just thought it was kind of me being real about what's going on. And it, it was to a certain degree, but he was really right. What would be better would be for me to say words that suggest, I believe in us. Even if we sometimes disagree with each other. I believe God's going to do this. And I believe in people that agree with me and disagree with me. And quit the snarkiness and sarcasm usually doesn't help, especially when you're talking about things that could be potentially divisive. And so I heard him, and I was like, man, thank you so much for saying that to me. Um, And it was really helpful to me. A couple days later, we're making some changes at campus, and 
there's a there was a woman, um, just a little bit older than me, but kind of acts a lot older. You know what I'm saying? And um, she was just really anxious and uptight about living in a post-Christian world. She wouldn't say it that way, but man, like just all of the change in our world and how churches are changing and, and teenagers are changing and, and things that used to be wrong, we're not willing to say they're wrong. Anymore. You, know, you know what I mean? Just, she's really uptight about stuff. And, and, and it kind of came out in, a, in an encounter. And so I emailed her and said, hey, could we talk? And she said, yeah. So I'm, I'm on my way to go speak with her. She's a teacher at the school. And I'm going to go talk to her, and I know she's frustrated. She's frustrated with me and with the church. But you know what I also know? This is really actually going to be really great. I know her well enough to know this is a really good woman who loves God, and I'm going to be able to help her here. Like, we're not going to solve all the problems, but this isn't going to be a bad encounter. It's not one of those where I'm, like, going in, and I know this person hates my church and they're going to totally chew me out. I know. I'm actually looking forward to it. I am going to help her, and she's going to help me. We're going to love on each other. But she does have a complaint about me. So I'm on my way over there, and I bump into someone else from our church, and they say, where are you going? And I say, without even thinking, going to field some complaints. Why did I do that? I just lied. I mean, I did, technically I didn't lie. But I did lie. I didn't even think about it. And I, I sold out my church for 30 pieces of silver. Why? Like, what did I want out of that? What preachers? What did you? What would you want if you said that? Sympathy, man. Sympathy. Preachers need sympathy sometimes. What else? What would you want by saying that? Affirmation. Affirmation. It lifts you up. It makes me look like the good guy. Mm -hmm. I. This. That's why I call it thirty piece of silver. It was nothing. Jesus says, you have your reward. Yeah, I had it, and it was crap. Because yeah. Yeah. you know what? That guy didn't care. I wanted him to go, wow, Dusty has a hard job. And man, he's fighting the fight. He's out there. You know, not many people just walk right into the fire. But there he goes. But I knew. <laughs> I knew this wasn't true. You know, it's funny, but it's actually true. That's actually really what I wanted. I didn't know that. But the more I stopped and thought about it, I was like, and you know what? I mean, some people like steal money and some people have affairs. And, but I'm pretty sure that sin was really dark. I was hurting the body of Christ so that I could receive some affirmation. That's, that's, that's kind of, that's really dark. So I should probably tell that. Shouldn't I? I should just say that at a table with brothers and sisters. And feel like if I told it, I would free me and I would free them. Yeah. Too. That I just invited freedom into the room. Mm. I um I try to like once a year say in uh, we don't I, we don't say in the pulpit because we don't have a pulpit, but on the platform. Um hey, you need to know that when you come up to me and say, "Good job." I go home and I rehearse it over and over and over again. You just need to know that about me. That's vulnerability. That, that, and so for some of you, that might not sound like a really big deal. That is hugely embarrassing for a preacher to say. Right, preachers? Like, it's one thing to say, listen, church, you need to know that I struggle with pride. It won't be everybody struggles with pride. But when you spell it out, 
this is what it looks like. Your little compliment that you didn't even mean, I go home and I resonate on it. And I live in it. And I breathe. You know what happens when you say that out loud and you're vulnerable? It kind of ruins the joy of the sin. Now I don't get to resonate in it anymore. Because now they know and I know. And now, I guess I'm saying, now I think we all feel welcome at the table of the Lord. I'm not saying that all moments are right for all confessions. I'm just saying there is a culture of vulnerability that is from the Holy Spirit. And our churches have not done a good job of embracing that. And my claim is that in Acts 5, this is what the Holy Spirit was battling. He was protecting the church from, in some cases, what we have eventually become. A place to not be safe. A place where even the world recognizes. We're not very honest with each other. We have scandals because we haven't been honest with each other all along. We have scandals. Preachers have been doing this for 10 years because nine years ago they didn't say, I have a struggle. And we could have walked with them for 10 years. And the world says, do you know that you're a preacher? Oh, yeah, we know. We know. We talk about it at the table with each other. Um, So rather than going home and being really irritated with your church because it's not safe at their table, I would suggest you lead the way in vulnerability. Yeah, it's just a potent culture change. Caleb Painter's in here, and uh, we we purposely hired someone who had never worked for a church um, because we needed like just fresh eyes. And Caleb just models this so much with our elders and with our staff that it has become natural for us. And in fact, the person who is unwilling to be vulnerable is kind of the oddball in the moment. Like, you kind of know it. We all kind of know it. Uh, one of us isn't being really honest about ourselves. Uh, so one last thing, really quickly. I didn't really leave time for comment, did I? But I am the teacher of this class. So, uh, so um, vulnerability requires self-awareness. And self-awareness requires silence. Uh, I had a woman really let me have it the other day. And <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny, actually. I mean, she was just really upset. She was really letting me have it. And just so you know, that doesn't really happen that much anymore. I mean, it does happen on occasion for preachers, but I grew up a preacher's kid. It used to happen all the time. It's not quite that way as much anymore, at least not in my experiences. She was really upset about something that we had done. And I mean, she was spitting all over me and letting me have it. I have walked with this woman through a lot of stuff. And I said, you know, I love you, right? Yes, I know you do, Dusty. And, and you love me too. Well, not right now. <laughs> That's what she said to me. And, and so I said, listen, I know that you're angry. I'm not angry, she said to me, spitting all over me. And so my response was, hey, when you know that you're angry, and when you know why you're angry, then let's talk. You, you can't really be vulnerable if you're not really self-aware. Right? So there is this, um, it requires silence on our part. I can't say to my staff, guys, I really blew it this week. I sold the church for 30, 30 pieces of silver. Unless I'm listening 
to my brothers and sisters and to God in His Spirit and letting Him kind of work on my heart and see that about me, right? Um, uh, outside of that, I might be like what I have been and think that I've got nothing to share. If you feel like you have nothing to share, you're in a little bit of a dangerous place. You kind of, if I could just say that gently, you're in a little bit of a dangerous place. You will always have something to share because <laughs> you're a human being like everybody else. Okay, any, like we got like two minutes. Any parting comments, Ross? I'm, uh, well, you're the professor, Ross, yeah. so you should get it. But you have the cool accent, well, so go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, question for you. Um, how vulnerable, transparent are you on the platform? It's easy to do it with staff, but on the platform... I'm yeah, just, it's not easy to do with staff, <laughs> but um, it's, not. I, I, it's, not for, it's not for me. I'm a, I grew up a preacher's kid. I'm a private person. Mm. Um, I'm vulnerable on the platform as well. I will at some point tell that story. So with your with commoners, I'm going to say that. No. Word, of course, then. I think there's appropriateness with individuals and then with full community. I would gladly tell that story I just told to you from the platform when I feel like it's safe for her. Mm -hmm. She's in the room. Yeah. And I don't want to hurt her as well. But it will be told yeah. at some point. And the, when I say, hey, you give me compliments, I say that from the platform. There will be some point where I talk about the damage that my sarcasm has done to the church. I, I feel like the platform, you have to measure what is safe for the people. Usually our sins are communal. And so there are people in the room who are involved in my sin. And, and so they, they could be harmed by that as well or hurt. Or, um, but I think that the preacher starts with vulnerability. Yeah. And it's not just, I didn't mean to really communicate that vulnerability is all confession. It's just being real, yeah. too. It's just um, not trying to be someone whom you are not, right? Just, you know, being not self-absorbed, but being yourself with people and giving them room to be themselves. Does that answer your question? Of course, yeah. Ross? Thank you. Uh, two things. First, I learned a lot today. And secondly, I'm uncomfortable with your saying what you said about me being a professor. Okay. So I, I would prefer, because you're trying to praise me, you know what uh -huh. And I'm much, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm more comfortable with the praise I'm probably getting right now for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> that was so self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> you know that about me. <laughs> okay, so I do want to say something about that, though. All right, because that is such a great parable. We are a mess. And if we're not careful, our vulnerability, so confessing, like me confessing I wanted affirmation, could be a way of garnering affirmation. We really are it's such a... Maybe we should all just stop talking forever. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, one of the things that Dusty does really well you asked the question about how vulnerable it is he. Um, this, I think it's a, so much of a culture in our church that the day that I got hired was the day that my wife and I shared our almost divorce testimony. So I mean, they, that in and of itself, our elders have really perpetuated the vulnerability. But one of the things I think you can do uh, without being a sloppy mess every Sunday as a preacher, just telling every dark secret, is affirm the ones that have been vulnerable before you. So Dusty does a great job of 
when the other day we had in the Lord's Supper a family of triplets and the kids were running all over the stage and the mom and dad were trying to be honest, Dusty, instead of just going with the script, he said, hey, let's pause and just know this is what church is about. Yeah. So yeah. in that vulnerability, you have the power to affirm so yeah. many things that people need to hear from you because they see that from the preacher's management. Yeah, that's part of the, we state vulnerability yeah. is about you. That's part of that. We yeah. state it over and over. Yeah. Any other? Yes, ma'am? During the Lord's Supper, what does it look like in your congregation? Passing the trays. Mm -hmm. You've talked about the vulnerability of people mm -hmm. speaking during the, the Lord's we, Supper. How is mm -hmm. that done? Is during the Lord's Supper on Sundays, we um, have a table on our stage and um, some microphones sitting on the table. A family with children or a singles group or an individual will sit at the table and they will share. This is what God has been doing in my life. And then we share the bread and the cup. It's, there's not, it's, it's very similar to what we grew up with, except it is profoundly different because we've invited them to do more than just read one text about the cross. We've, this, is, this really involves a whole other class. I'd encourage you to read John Mark Hicks' book, Welcome to the Table. We've tried to move from altar to table. That the cross is the altar, but the meal gets eaten, right? And the table is not the cross. It's the table. It's the fellowship event. But but this is is it, did I answer your question? This is what it looks well, like. They, sort of. So you have a small group on the platform, right? At a take at the table. Right. How does the rest of the church share in that? At the at that time, do they get up and go to the table and partake? No. Is it passed? We don't do that. We have done that in the past. Our, our facilities won't allow it. Really, it's kind of crowded. Um, so we really do a traditional. We pass trays. Okay. Yeah. So you simply choose a group who is your yeah. chosen or volunteer a family or, or whatever yeah. to right. start that discussion. Right. It's somewhat organized. It, okay. it's, they're the only ones speaking. It, by the way, if it were up to me, it rarely is, I would do away with Bible class. I would have communion for an hour together and then have worship together so that it could really truly be more of a communal event. Uh, we, can't, we just can't do it in 15 minutes staring at the backs of each other's heads. So, okay, thanks for coming. Thanks, Dustin.